It allows people to consider their failings and foibles in a comfortable place. That's Dr. Shailen Strachan. Much more on the link between self-compassion and motivation coming up next. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. Welcome to an interview edition of the show. This week, we're talking about frontiers in self-compassion research with two experts on the matter, Dr. Shailen Strachan and PhD candidate Laura Mead. Shailen Strachan is an associate professor at the University of Manitoba in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management. Her research has actually generated over 60 publications, mainly on the topic of exercise adherence and identity. One of her most recent publications is in the journal called Psychology of Sport and Exercise, and it's entitled, I Am an Exerciser. Her colleague, Laura Mead, is a PhD candidate in health psychology and public health at King's College in London. Her research focuses on enhancing exercise adherence in populations with chronic pain conditions. Shailen and Laura have done a lot of work together on exercise behavior. For example, they recently published a paper together along with their colleague, Brittany Semenchuk, on the role of guilt and shame in exercise engagement. And that article is called, Is There Positive in the Negative? Understanding the Role of Guilt and Shame in Physical Activity Self-Regulation. And that article really caught my eye. And I'm really happy to have both of them on the show today. Together, they're really contributing to a growing frontier of self-compassion research. And I think they're a great resource for us to learn more about a couple of really important concepts that are, I guess, starting to appear more regularly in the health and fitness discourse. So let's jump into the interview and have a listen. All right. First off, uh, Shailen Strachan and Laura Mead, thank you for joining me on the show today. I've been really excited about this topic, shame and guilt, and the role that it plays in motivation for some time. And I want to start off just in general for somebody who is um, unfamiliar with your area of research shame and guilt, the role of those things in motivation and exercise adherence. Can you tell me a little bit about that area and the research that you're doing here at the University of Manitoba? Yes. So I've always been interested in psychological factors that affect the self-regulation of exercise. So people's attempts to adopt, stick to uh, an exercise program, because it doesn't just happen without us trying. So we do have to work at sticking to exercise. And so I'm interested in the processes that would help with that, as well as those that would hinder that. And so shame and guilt come into that. And I probably first started looking at shame and guilt and um, negative emotions in general from a line of research stemming from my PhD studies, which was on identity. So I would study exercise identity or the extent to which a person feels that they are an exerciser, sees themselves as an exerciser, as opposed to exercise being something that they do. It becomes something they talk to their friends about, something that they, a role that they really feel that they, they hold. And so the theory that goes along with, with identity, shame and guilt, well, negative emotions in general are quite central. As the theory goes, if you identify as an exerciser, you have sort of standards about what you would need to do to say, yep, being an exerciser this week. So that might be, you know, that you have to get to the gym four times a week. It might be that you walk to work every day. But when you deviate from that, then 
you're supposed to experience negative emotions and those negative emotions are supposed to be motivating because when we strongly identify with something, we feel discomfort. You may have heard of the term cognitive dissonance before. So you feel discomfort when you're not living in line with, with uh, something that is a part of who you are. And so in that way, um, that's probably how shame and guilt or negative emotions in general first made it into my research because we're interested. Uh, and this is where uh, Laura's research came in, finding out, is it really helpful to, to feel guilty, to, to feel a bit ashamed? Is there something positive about those seemingly negative emotions? It seems like the idea of negative emotions, the negative part is a bit up in the air. You're, you're, you're kind of poking at that a little bit. It's interesting you talk about your own standards for exercising and that being a part of that formation of identity. So where do these standards even come from? Where do people adopt this idea that four to five times a week is what I need? Otherwise, no, I'm still that lazy person. I'm still unable mm -hmm. to cut it. So uh, we did qualitative interviews with, with um, exercisers, so people who saw themselves as exercisers. And in a nutshell, we found that there are sort of standard things that people use as criteria for determining whether they're an exerciser, but then the content of that criteria can vary a lot. So for example, people tended to have like a certain frequency that they had to do, a certain duration that they had to do, uh, and, and intensity, but there was a lot of variability in what that was. I recall one participant saying, walking the dog doesn't count. Whereas other people felt that if they made a point on their lunch break to, you know, run some errands by walking around or at work taking the stairs, that that counted. So there was a lot of variability in what being an exerciser means for an individual, but we definitely draw upon societal expectations for that. And identity theory dives into that a bit too. So like any role, you know, we have ideas about what it means to be a good mother, what it means to also to, to hold, to be an exerciser. So when you think up being an exerciser, we have, you know, general, you know, someone who exercises regularly, you know, maybe we know about the Canadian guidelines for physical activity and that might influence things. Uh, we, we know people who are active that we might draw from that, but there's still variability. Just to jump off part of that, I think it's also important to understand that these identities can change. So um, we can have multiple identities and sometimes some will kind of take the forefront and some will kind of step back. So for a good example is becoming a new parent. Um, and a lot of people struggle with these transitions in their lives of how do I keep that balance? And guilt and shame particularly can come into play when we have these shift in identities because obviously this new baby is demanding your attention, but you you identify someone who's active. And if you were someone that to you being active is exercising four times a week and you're no longer doing that, that can start to elicit some of those negative emotions. But we have this new priority that we need to now kind of shift those priorities and find a new balance of these identities. Going back to your question about where did these external motivations come from, very much it is what's happening in our life as well as who we surround ourselves with. So I know when when I started working with Shay, it was a very active office. Shaylin runs a lot. Everyone in our office is running a lot. I'm not someone who likes to run. I like to go more in the gym, but I found myself running more often. So it's who you're surrounded by. And if you have friends who are very active, that very, very much plays a role. Yeah. And I, I, I've brought up before in previous episodes of how culture is sort of the water that we're swimming in every day. And sometimes we don't notice it and sometimes we do. And if there's some really strong, positive parts of that culture, it can really influence 
our behavior going forward and even get us uh, interested in new things that we've never thought of. But this person, I want to get back to this person who says dogs, walking on dogs is not exercise. I have two dogs, so I'm in big trouble because I've always thought that that's pretty good exercise. But whatever. Well, we Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. So we've talked about negative emotions as a whole and, and then guilt and shame. And I know from some of your research, you can tease those things apart a little bit. Yeah. So they are quite different. So they can be lumped together as what's called negative self-conscious emotions. So these self-conscious emotions are kind of those emotions that don't really elicit so something like happiness or surprise that will show on our face. But self-conscious emotions like guilt and shame don't really have an outward appearance. So it can be hard to tease those two apart. But the best way to kind of delineate between the two is shame is very much, I myself feel shame. So you internalize it as I'm a bad person. Whereas guilt is very much targeted towards a behavior. So I did a bad thing, or I'm not happy with something that I did. So we can kind of target it to a very specific behavior as opposed to me, myself as a whole. And not so much now, but um, fat shaming and kind of messaging and marketing towards trying to get people to be active by making exercise and perhaps body image as reflecting on them as a person will therefore kind of elicit more shame. There's been a lot of research coming out on body-related shame, both in terms of weight as well as people with cancer or different diseases, chronic diseases, and how focusing on ourselves can then lead to this feeling of shame, which may or may not motivate behaviors. So in terms of motivation, it's theorized that shame leads to a decrease in behavior and kind of a shutdown mode. So we go within ourselves and want to kind of crawl into a ball. Whereas guilt is theorized to motivate us and strive towards improving that behavior. What things do people bump up against that are real big triggers in that regard these days? I think some of this does come from our upbringing, what we're used to seeing. So for a kid that has active parents and they've seen their parents continually active, you kind of have these past experiences to draw from. There's also a lot of research looking at resilience. So how resilient are we to adversity? I think another big area that Shay can speak to is self-compassion and how we feel about ourselves. I'll let you interview each other. That's just great. It's perfect. This is perfect. <laughs> so I, yeah, I can, I can speak to uh, self-compassion and, and will, but I just have had one other thought uh, before I go there. An interesting thing with, with exercise and for people who are trying to promote it is that, you know, ideally we want people to, to care and to um, take responsibility for their health and, and be motivated to be more active. Uh, but when we, when it becomes individual's responsibility too, then there can be a lot of guilt and shame when they don't do it. And, you know, we see more and more, more people run marathons than ever before. There's so many more ways to be active, which is great. And, I, you know, I think more and more people are starting to get the message that, you know, physical activity is one of the best ways to prevent and manage chronic conditions. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to be active, but then when people can't do it for the myriad of reasons that can stand in the way of them doing it, you know, then there can be a lot of shame and guilt that they're not, you know, being this ideal person in society. And of course, when it's also tied up with body image, um, there's just a lot of room for guilt and shame to, to come up in there. Recently, I've started to look at uh, a self-compassion. And the way I came to this is I have been a runner for years. But I feel like I've always had a pretty healthy relationship with running. Um, so a decade ago, when I used to run marathons before I had kids, I I would 
happily train for a marathon with a running group. And then uh, our coach would say, okay, you should take a month off after any marathon before you start really getting back into running. And I'd be like, yes. So I love that month off, but so many of my co-runners were like, no, there's no way we're not. Hmm. And they'd be right back at it, you know, after a day or two off. Uh, and I was always puzzled by that. Um, and then, yeah, just having different running partners over the years. There were some people who I felt were uh, like just the pinnacle of adherent to exercise. They never missed a day. And in some ways I admired them. But then when I, you know, getting to spend a lot of time with them, I would also think, I'm not sure this is the best recipe. So they were very hard on themselves, exercising through injury, sort of, you know, I I remember this distinct (laughs) moment once where someone I ran with, um, I woke up and we were supposed to go for a morning run and it was just downpouring outside. And so I called her and said, I guess we're not running. And she said, get over here, we're running. (laughs) I sort of remember thinking like, oh, we really don't need to run. We could wait till it stopped raining or run tomorrow. Uh, And so I I just sort of struggled with like, do you really need to be so hard on yourself is the only recipe self-discipline and, you know, sort of relentless self-discipline. And I wasn't convinced that that was the way to go. If you want your exercise to not only make you healthy and if you, you know, that you're adherent to the behavior, but you want to experience well-being and and enjoy life and do something that you'll want to stick to. And so in 2011, I was at a conference. It was called the Self Conference. So a lot of um, researchers, um, psychologists, and researchers who study aspects of the self were there. And a researcher by the name of Mark Leary was presenting on self-compassion. And he he has a lovely paper uh, that talks about self-compassion and self-regulation. And he outlines a number of ways that if you are self-compassionate, which I'll define in a moment, that will actually help you regulate health behaviors. It'll help you set reasonable goals. Probably where it will help you the most is um, bounce back after setbacks or failure. And people who are self-compassionate generally just want what's good for themselves. So as the name implies, self-compassion is just being kind to yourself. And a nice sort of layperson definition of it is to treat yourself like you would a good friend. And so often when something goes wrong in our lives, if you take a moment to listen to how we talk to ourselves, we often talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to Mm -hmm. anyone else. Let's use an exercise example. Say you set your alarm to exercise at 6.30 in the morning and the alarm went off and, and you didn't go. And, you know, then it's finally time to get up and you're like, oh, what's wrong with me? I'm so lazy. Whereas if your friend was telling you this story, you'd say, oh, sounds like you're human. You know, I do that all the time. Maybe exercising in the morning isn't the time for you to exercise. I wonder, is there another time that you could go? And so, yeah, self-compassion is just understanding that you're human. And uh, there's three components. So self-kindness, common humanity, that understanding that everyone makes mistakes, everyone fails. Uh, it's part of the human experience that we can't avoid. And and then also mindfulness. So being aware that, you know, this is a time of suffering. I'm mad at myself that, that I didn't run, uh, didn't get up and go to the gym, whatever it is, but not ruminating about it, nor ignoring it. So it's not constructive to totally ignore negative situations and, and not look for how, what we can learn from them, but nor is it constructive to ruminate on them. So when I heard this talk, I thought, yeah, this, this is what 
I've been thinking about as a more constructive approach to relating to yourself when you try to exercise or stick to an exercise program. You know, failure is, you know, an inevitable part of any fitness journey and anyone's relationship with any activity, like you mentioned running. Is there something that you could offer, you know, the listener, like what they could do or is, is the self-compassion research suggest what they can do to prepare in advance for these setbacks rather than just being in this reactionary state? So if we have you know, a boss at work who's giving us feedback on a project that we've done, um, that's something that allows us to reflect on the behaviors that we've just completed. So using that in an exercise example, like Shay was saying, alarm goes off at 630, um, didn't wake up. If this is happening repeatedly, this is a behavior that doesn't work for you. Me and myself, I am not a morning exercise person. Um, and that's taken some trial and error. I've tried a few times to go to a morning boot camp and quite regularly did not go. So I think it's important to try to avoid these, I'm doing little air quotes of failures, but to avoid these failures in the future is to think about what's worked and not worked for us. And most people who have been active throughout their life can probably tell you stories when they've dipped and peaked and had ebbs and flows and tried things that have worked and haven't worked and they've learned from them. So I think a lot of people who can keep this adherent behavior is because they've reflected on the behaviors that have worked for them. So it's looking at where have I been successful in the past? How can I bring that forward with me? Yeah. And I think that experimentation part of it, the trial and error is an important skill. In fact, uh, a podcast will have been recently published on the show about nostalgia and drawing upon the past to inform the future. Is there anything in there that you can remember to pull forward? So the idea of trial and error and trying things and learning from it, it seems to be a, a vital part of this. It is a skill. And I think a lot of people, so this can tie in the self-compassion and guilt and shame as well as a lot of people may be quick to beat themselves up, but regular physical activity is a skill because it is a behavior that we're trying to work into every day or every couple of days when we have a lot of other life demands. So it is, it's a skill not only to complete it, but it's a skill to think back on our behaviors on what's worked and not worked and, and fitting those in. Um, so again, self-compassion comes in there on understanding that and giving yourself a bit of a break, but also really being honest with yourself and thinking about, okay, well, why didn't that work? Is it really because it's something out of my control? Is it something that realistically, realistically, I'm not going to get up at 5am in the morning. So I'm going to stop telling myself I am and feeling bad about it. I'm going to change when I'm going to do my exercise. And that's when those negative emotions can start to creep up and potentially take a more detrimental role. I want to say a few things about uh, all the great stuff Laura has just said. There's a large body of research that says that negative emotions can undermine self-regulation in a number of ways. So first of all, I don't know if anyone will have ever heard of this, but some people think about uh, self-regulation or trying to manage your behavior as a, a limited resource, right? A finite resource. And we've probably all lived that, you know, the end of the day comes and you've been, you know, in meetings, being, you know, on the ball, making deadlines, working all day and you get home. And then, you know, that's when you eat the haagen because um, you're just tired of holding it all together. And so, yeah, when, when we have a number of negative emotions, whether that be we're fearful about something, we're feeling bad about something, that takes a toll on on our ability to manage our behaviors. In that way, um, you know, if we if say we didn't uh, get up and, and exercise in the morning, um, and then you spend the rest of the day feeling guilty about it, you know, you could be exhausted when it actually when another time comes when you you could exercise, or also just you know it, it, then exercise might become something that you just 
think of bad feelings about, right? So the guilt and shame that you might feel coming from that can just start to, can start to permeate that, that behavior. And so then when you think about exercise, you just think about feeling bad. So there's a number of ways that uh, those emotions can undermine behavior. And then where, where self-compassion comes in, um, as Laura was saying, it allows people to consider their failings and weaknesses and foibles in a comfortable place. Kristen Neff uh, is, is the, the, the sort of the founder of self-compassion in Western research. It's a Buddhist construct that's been around for a long time, but she was interested in studying it in reaction to a bunch of research on self-esteem. And so um, there are a lot of benefits of, to self-esteem, but when we approach something from a place of um, worrying about our self-esteem, we're always holding ourselves to a standard and uh, the nice thing about self-compassion in comparison to self-esteem is that you you know that you're human and that you are likely going to fail and that there's room for that. And then instead of ruminating about it when it happens, you can kind of be curious and think, oh, what went wrong there? So as Laura was saying, that self-reflective process and recognizing that, yeah, if you're going to embark on an exercise program, you're going to have setbacks and failures. That is just because you're human. And if you can be kind to yourself during that process, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from, from that. And know that it's a journey and that you're going to learn some really valuable information from those times that, that you messed up. So, you know, you mentioned like self-reflection as a skill and self-compassion is a skill, something we can get better at, right? Mm -hmm. So what sort of exercises that are um, pretty accessible and, and relatively simple to do, like a starting point for people to help bring this into their process, into their fitness journey? I think there can be a lot of variability in this because we're all very different. So, um, but I think it's taking experiences from other parts of your life and applying that to your exercise behaviors. So for me, I'm someone that I really like post-its and I like notes <laughs> and that's worked for me in you know, academic life and it has kind of infiltrated everything in my life. So for me, it's writing down, I got into a habit of at the end of the day, how did I do with, especially when I've had these changes in my life. So for example, when I moved overseas, I had a hard time getting back into a routine. So I may set these goals and by the end of the week, didn't do any of them. So I was very reflective at the end of every day. I wrote down what I actually did um, and then looked at where some of these things didn't quite work to start to see patterns of what would work for me. But that's not to say that works for everybody. Um, so not to get discouraged when, you know, your friend is talking to you over wine saying, hell, oh, I made these great goals and they all work for me. And then you just get upset about it. You know, there is a, there's research out there looking at when you surround yourself with active people or have an active partner and how that impacts our um, exercise behaviors. But even just talking about it and that triggers that self-reflection. Being accountable to other people keeps that um, self-regulation. Some people are really into the public announcements on Facebook. Um, but again, that doesn't work for everybody. So seeing someone on your Facebook feed do that and you start to think, but that doesn't work for me. How come I can't do that? Because we are all are different and we have different behaviors that work for us. So I think that is something that's really important to keep in mind. And again, coming back to remembering that it is a skill to learn and it's learning what best works for us individually. It is a skill that can be learned. The first point is to pay attention to how you talk to yourself in your head. And most people will find that they are actually quite cruel to themselves and 
they wouldn't really want to hang around with someone who talked to them like that. So catching yourself doing that and then trying to think, okay, so if my friend came to me with this problem, you know, what would I say to them? And there's often a lot of wisdom in the advice that you would give a friend who is struggling and trying to work through a failure or a difficult situation. Also, um, there's exercises related to um, improving or reminding ourselves that we are human. So reflecting on that, you know, well, well, so-and-so might exercise all the time and never has trouble with it. Their house is messy, right? So yeah, yeah. we all we we all have things that we are good at and and bad at, and and so you know um, it's it's common humanity. It's uh, it's being human uh, to to have strengths and to have weaknesses, and just to remind yourself of that. Where do you see it kind of going, and and where they might be able to access some of this stuff on a regular basis? Yes. Besides this podcast, obviously. <laughs> yes, self-compassion as an area of research is growing um, at a, a tremendous rate. Um, so Kristen Neff brought it to the research world in 2003, starting in academic settings, mental health settings, but it's being applied uh, all over now. And uh, where I'm interested in it is is in how it can help us to to be more active or to cope well. We're starting to do some research, and so are others, on looking at how self-compassion can help people with chronic conditions to navigate and try to, to make healthy choices in that context. We, we have one study that uh, uh, is under review right now where we found that um, mothers of young children who are by some people's accounts, the least active segment of the population, not surprisingly, that self-compassion is really important for that group uh, in predicting their health behaviors. And this is where guilt comes in. We found that mothers of young children who are more self-compassionate engage more in a variety of healthy behaviors. So getting more sleep, eating well, exercise, and stress management. And that whole link works through self-compassion's influence on on guilt. So mothers who are self-compassionate experience less guilt about taking time for themselves and their health and then allow themselves to take that time. When mothers have to think, or fathers, <laughs> that's the next study, uh, have to think about taking time you know, to get their exercise in or to get enough sleep in or to make themselves the healthy meal that they need, they often think, well, I would have to do that at the cost of supporting my family. And so when women, mothers can be self-compassionate, they're, they're more willing to, to let themselves um, engage in those behaviors. And it sort of works with that analogy of the oxygen mask, right? Like if we can take care of ourselves first, then we're better able to take care of everyone. But coming back to, to your, you were asking like, you know, where do you think this is going? I think that we're going to see this mainstream in schools and especially, you know, we see children now learning to, to be mindful, being taught how to meditate. There's also a, a large body of research looking at this in athletes. I, ha I have um, one student, Laura Cicerelli, who ha has looked at self-compassion in athletes. And, and there's some other Canadian researchers who are doing a lot of work in this area. And, you know, we think about the recipe for success among athletes as being, you know, you've got to you be tough on yourself and you've got to you know, if you, if you mess up, then get to the gym and shoot, you know, a hundred more hoops in, than you did yesterday or, or whatever. So there's, 
there's a tendency to be self-critical and to think that that's the recipe for success. But in fact, um, there's a lot of research showing that that can be really detrimental, um, not only to mental health, but also to performance. And that taking a self-compassionate approach, again, allows those athletes to be self-reflective and to see how they could improve, you know, to watch a tape of their last performance and, and not spin out about it and to, to kind of remain calm and be able to see where they can make improvements. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to take a little while for people to, to, to realize, and there actually is a construct called fear of self-compassion. Um, so I think we need to get the word out there that being kind to yourself does not mean being complacent. In fact, people who are self-compassionate want what's best for themselves and they want to do well. A lot of areas of research are going is also looking at social media and the impacts of social media. So particularly for people in their formative years and how accessible it is to see fitness models can very easily start to lead to people looking at someone on the screen and what they look like. And that can start to result in some body shaming as opposed to guilt. And I'm sure if someone stopped themselves as they're scrolling through Instagram, they would realize that what they're saying to themselves isn't particularly positive. And so that, again, going back to the guilt and shame, that shame does not necessarily motivate the behavior. So we kind of start to, to shut down a little bit more. How do we transition that to be a more motivating area. So instead of I'm a bad person, okay, what, what behaviors can I actually do um, that fit within my life that I enjoy, that I actually want to do, that I can be the best version of myself? Not necessarily this person I see on the screen because we don't all live in a filter, but something that I can do to feel better about myself. I interviewed somebody early in the show who was a Boston Marathon qualifier and she has like she's leveraged social media into this very supportive network of runners that she supports and gets support from and it's very positive but you know that there are you know darker sides of it that you know people are having reactions and emotions that are not facilitating future behavior and whatnot and detrimental to mental health right so this is a double-edged sword it would seem and part of the the culture that we're all a part of that influences a lot of these things in our relationship with our bodies and relationship with the act of moving to in, in some capacities. This has been, honestly, this has been fascinating. I knew that I would come in here and learn a lot myself and I'm really glad we did this. Thank you so much for taking the time for, for updating us on your research. And uh, maybe in the future, we can dive in a little bit deeper as this research rolls along because it, it seems like a frontier that will benefit a lot of people. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to share what we've been studying. I really enjoyed that interview. I learned a lot. Dr. Shailen Strachan and Laura Mead, I can't thank them enough for agreeing to do that, to sit down with me. There's just so many gems throughout that interview. And I know that um, a lot of you, myself included, have experienced guilt and shame when it comes to our fitness journeys. And so providing a little extra insight like they have can give us a little extra perspective. But most importantly, I think what I really pulled from that is when times get tough, when you feel triggered by certain things that you see online or certain things that you encounter offline, that it's really important to check in to see how kind are you being to yourself? How friendly are you being to yourself as you navigate some of these obstacles? And and I think just that type of self-awareness can go a very long way. So thank you to Shailen and Laura for providing that jolt of self-reflection. And I hope that you enjoyed that interview too. 
So that does it for this week. If you got a second, why not follow the show on Instagram at Happily Ever Active Show? You can follow me personally as well on Instagram at Kelly.Dell. That's D O E L L. Thanks again for checking in, and until next time, here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.